Tim Keller uh, from Presbyter- Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He says this, imagine that you are a billionaire. Everybody there? And that you have three, count them, three $10 bills in your wallet. And you get out of the cab and you hand the driver one of those bills for an eight-hour fare. An $8 fare, I'm sorry. Later in the day, you look in your wallet and you find out that there's only one $10 bill in there. And you say this, either what, I dropped one somewhere or I gave the cabbie 20 bucks for an $8 fare. What are you going to do, Tim Keller asks, posits this question. And what would you do? Would you get all upset? Would you go to the police and demand that they search the city for the cab driver to get your $10 back? No, you're probably just going to shrug it off. Why? Let there be light. Why do you shrug it off? Because you're a billionaire. You're too rich to be concerned about that kind of loss. And here's the thing. This week, I know what's happened in, in your life, because it happens in, in my lifetime, too. Uh, somebody, somebody criticized you this week. And something you bought or something you invested in maybe turned out to be less valuable than you thought it was. And something you wanted to happen in your life didn't go the way you wanted it to happen. And those are real losses. Don't get me wrong. Those are real losses. They really, uh, we are experiencing loss in this life. But what are you going to do if you are a Christian? Will this setback, whatever it is, Will it disrupt your contentment in life? Will you maybe even shake your fist at God like Victor did when he found out that he had just weeks and months to live because initially he shook his fist at God? Will you toss and turn all night? If so, Tim Keller says this, I submit that's because you don't know how truly rich you are. And if you're that upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out at people for hurting your feelings, you might call it a lack of self-control or self-esteem, and it is. But more fundamentally, you have lost total touch with your identity as a Christian. And here's what Tim Keller says. As a Christian, you are a spiritual billionaire. Don't wring your hands over losing 10 bucks. Do you all see yourselves this morning as spiritual billionaires? That's what Peter is trying to tell his readers, these folks who are on the fringes of society, the margins of society, scattered in that area of the world that we would now call modern Turkey, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Pontus, those readers in those churches and those places where people are living as despised and rejected because of their faith, because of who they are. And Peter's trying to get them to understand, like Tim Keller points out in this illustration, that they are spiritual billionaires. Although they live on the margins of society, they are not mainstream. And I think that's a good message for American Christians to hear. Because for too long, I think we have lived under the thought that we were mainstream, that America was a Christian nation. And if we were at one time, I would have to argue that we are far from that now. And what Peter's going to say, and it keeps ringing over and over throughout the entire book of 1 Peter, is he wants them to see who they are. He wants them to see what their identity is. And then he says over and over again, because of who you are, because of what God has caused you to be, because of the family he has put you in, now live a different way. Not live a different way because it makes you closer to God. You already are closer to God, so live the way that you already are. That's what he says. He says it over and over again. So if you have your Bibles with me, and I... Hope you do. Please turn to the book of 1 Peter. Let's start to re-examine 
the first chapter. We stopped last week in verse 8, so, uh, or verse 9, so we're going to pick up in verse 10. Remember what Peter, the title of this series is, is Live Well. Peter's instructions to them are, how do you live well? How do you live joyfully? How do you live the, the abundant Christian billionaire life in the midst of all circumstances? Remember, these are a people, once again, just to set the context, these are our people who are marginalized in their society. They are not isolated, living in communes. They are in society, yet marginalized. They are despised. They are rejected. Not persecuted yet to the point of death. But Nero is on the the throne of Rome, and he will soon be coming after Christians and persecuting them to death. So this is the atmosphere that Peter is writing. And he says this, it's a good review, this, this, the next two verses, 10 and 11, it's a good bridge to the next section where Peter wants to talk a little bit more about how to think different and act different because of who they are. He says this, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He says, as to this salvation, he's remind, he just spent the, the first nine verses talking about this salvation. And what salvation is he talking about? He's talking about the one where by God's great mercies, God did something and intervened in our lives to cause us to be born again, to get a new heart, a heart that loves God, a heart that is now can be right with God. He talks about being born again, having a new life placed in you by the, 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 the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart. And through the atonement of Christ, you're now made right with God. You've been shown the mercies of God. And now we have a living hope. Remember last week we talked about this idea that we look forward to our inheritance, that we live with God, that we live with Jesus for eternity. It's an inheritance that we have, and that is our future focus that he says is part of this great salvation. So we have a life of living and serving with and for the king of the universe. It's an inheritance that is an eternal life, and it is a secure future. Remember, he said, one that never perishes, one that never spoils, one that never fades. It is kept for us, and we are kept for it. I, li- I like that. Our inheritance as Christians, we are spiritual billionaires and our inheritance is kept for us by the power of God. We are kept for it by the power of God. There's security and safety in that. So we can be future focused. That's this salvation that he's talking about. He says, you know what, this salvation, not only is it great, not only is it majestic, not only is it unbelievable, But it's been a long time coming. Long time God has promised this salvation. He's talking about prophets who for decades and centuries preached about it. So what he's saying is this salvation that is so great that you are the primary beneficiaries of, by the way, occupied and consumed the hearts and minds of godly men for centuries upon centuries. And as these prophets discovered God's word, as they looked at the work of Christ in prophetic nature, they realized that it was for our good. Remember, he's writing to a people that are scattered. He's writing to a people that need encouragement because of what's going on in their lives. They're on the margins of society, and Peter is helping them get a handle on who they are, and we need to hear that today. These are meant to be encouraging words. For all the difficulty that they are experiencing in life as the despised and rejected and marginalized people of God, they are the recipients of God's amazing mercy and grace. Do you have that understanding this morning? Or do we take it for granted? And I think God, as, as this book will point out, this letter points out, God brings suffering and hardship and allows it in our life so that we understand what an amazing 
merciful, gracious salvation we have. And it's so amazing. Look how long God has prepared for it. Centuries and centuries he prepared just the right time that Jesus would come in to the world to save us. It's so good. Read verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. You, readers, they're serving you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This salvation is so good that even angels can only dream about it. You know, we, we, uh, we think about a lot about angels in our culture, don't we? Because we tend to maybe not talk about God so much, but angels are fair game. Angels are cruel, right? They're not going to really do anything too bad, I guess, unless they're the, the demon angels. We're kind of occupied with those. All kinds of TV shows about angels. Our culture kind of has an angel uh, um, fixation. Sometimes maybe we want to even change places with them, right? Because we know that they stand before God. They see God. They're in heaven. And boy, when suffering comes, wouldn't you like to trade places with an angel? But here's what Peter's implying. They don't know God like we know God. Angels don't have a relationship with his son like we have a relationship with his son. And we talk about fallen angels. You know what? They're hopeless. They have no plan of salvation that we can see in Scripture anyway. This salvation, which is so majestic, so incredible, so expansive, so glorious, it's so breathtaking, it even has the angels going green with envy. And then when he says this, verse 11, seeking the time the Spirit of Christ within them, the prophets was indicating as he predicted Notice the order of this before we get too much farther on. Notice the order. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Remember, suffering is the subject in the background of this letter. How to live well in all circumstances of life. How suffering really reflects God's glory and the gospel to an unbelieving world, and how marginalized people that are despised and rejected are supposed to live. So the context is suffering. Living well in light of it. And notice the order that Peter points out here that the prophets understood and recognized and that actually came to life in the reality of Jesus in his life. Suffering first, glory later. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? To people who are soon to be persecuted, who know what's coming. They're already feeling the effects of following Christ in their daily lives. Suffering first, glory in the future. That's the way it was with Christ. That's the way it's meant to be. Christian, that's the way God ordained it. Now, here's the problem with that. That's not what we want. That's not what we want. Because what we want is glory now, and then what? More glory later. Skip the suffering altogether. Right? You'd have to agree with me that nobody really wants suffering, although that's what God has ordained first, followed by glory. We want glory now and more glory in the age to come. Now, in context, I want to understand suffering includes all kinds of things. Pain, those of you in pain, those of you suffering in health, suffering now, glory later. There are times when that's the only encouragement I can give to my wife. Suffering now, babe, glory later. And the Holy Spirit has to do the rest. Praise God that he does the rest, okay? Disappointment. Yeah, life is a big disappointment a lot of times. Life is a lot of loss. Life is a lot of grief marked by happy moments. That is life as we know it. 
We know that it's true. However, I think sometimes we're fed this big fat lie about what our lives are supposed to be like. Politicians are so good at that, aren't they? Politicians are great at promising glory now, more glory in the future. Maybe even some preachers are guilty of that as well. Here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to reorient our thinking. It's meant to rewire and radically change our view of life. The general pattern that they're suffering now and glory later. And see, the gospel kind of shapes our expectations so that we're more ready to live on the margins of society. So are you ready to live on the margins of society? Or do you feel pretty comfortable thinking we're in mainstream America and that there's really no suffering coming in our future? The gospel should change our perspective on life. And I pray that as we work through this letter of 1 Peter, that our perspectives will be changed. The world is changing. You don't have to watch much news, much less Fox News, to know that the world is changing. It is not the world that we grew up in, that our parents grew up in, grandparents. So we need to get our perspectives right according to what 1 Peter is showing us here. So three way or four ways this morning that the gospel changes our perspective. Let's talk about those. It's in your, in your bulletin so you can take notes with that. The first thing is the gospel produces a new way of thinking. A new way of thinking. Let's read verses 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can hear the theme, can't you? Over and over again, he's going to have the same theme. Who you are determines how you live. Remember, glory later, suffering now. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, he starts off this little section with, therefore, in light of all that I just said about your salvation, in light of all that I said about this great inheritance that you have, in light of all that I said about keeping your minds focused on what's coming in the future, I need to tell you about who you are. I need to tell you about how to live. I need to tell you about how to live well, the theme of this letter. He's going to acknowledge them as people living on the margins of society. I'm going to say this over and over again. They are despised and rejected. They're not well-liked. They're not mainstream, although they live on Main Street. He says, but in Christ, this is who you are, beneficiaries of a great salvation, one that even the angels are envious of. And in light of that, let me tell you how to live. Notice the order that he has there. Must understand the order that he's talking about in this section as well. Because we have to clearly understand and properly understand God's purpose in our life. Peter reminds them of their change in their identity and then discusses the change in their behavior. So he spent 12 verses telling them about who they are in Christ and their salvation, what God has done to them and for them. And then he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Start thinking different. And as he keeps going on in the next couple of weeks, we'll unpack thinking different leads to acting different. So understand who you are. Understand your great salvation. Understand your inheritance. Start thinking different. Ultimately, start acting different. It has to be in that order. If we stress or if we start looking for a a change in behavior first, what's going to happen? What are we going to create if we start talking all about behavior in the church? Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. And that's all we concentrate on. That's the first thing we go to. What's going to happen, church? We're going to turn into legalists. We're going to have a bunch of smug and self-righteous people. We're going to have a bunch of smug and self-righteous churches. We're going to have a bunch of smug and self-righteous pastors. And I would contend that we've got far too much of that already out there. And legalism just crushes people. So we don't stress behavior first. We stress a new identity first. 
who you are because of your faith. And behavior change comes from identity change. The saying that we like to kind of promote is your doing comes out of your being. What you do comes out of who you are. Now, that's true in all of life. That's true in every person. That's why Peter is trying to so get these folks to see that you're different now, that you've changed. Again, the order here, change of identity first, change in thinking and behavior next, is absolutely imperative. It is vital for his readers to understand this. It is vital for us to understand this. Peter's not going to beat people up when they're backsliding or wandering away. He simply reminds them of who they are. Paul does the same thing. He doesn't beat people up. He reminds them, this is who you are. And people like that don't act like this because they know who they are. Simply reminds them. And knowing that their doing will come out of their being. Now, this is incredibly freeing, by the way. Truly liberating people in Christ. The things that we do now, that we, the world says do these things and God's happy with you. Boy, that is like a weight of bricks on your shoulders that you cannot carry around and it crushes you. And if you've tried in your life to live to a set of codes or rules or tried to, the standards of whatever church folk were telling you you needed to look like in order for God to be right with you, you know that when you mess up, it's just guilt upon guilt upon guilt. It's crushing people. That's why Christianity is so freeing. The things that we do don't crush us with a weight of expectation. We do them because that's who we are. I hope you see the difference in that this morning. You know, some religions require an eightfold path of living. Yeah, not four, not five, not seven, eight. I don't know how they ended up with eight. You've got to do these eight things, and you'll someday get to nirvana. Some require many devout prayers a day. What happens if you miss one of those? Some require strict adherence to some kind of diet and food. Now, I've tried to stay on diets, and I've been on the paleo diet, and I'm, I'm trying to do well. Heather, Heather's my paleo coach, by the way. If anybody needs no paleo diet, Heather, raise your hand. She is the person to see right there. And you know, I fall off the wagon sometimes. If my spiritual life depended on me staying on a paleo diet, oh, what guilt I would have. Because I'd be failing miserably. Sometimes, not all the time. So all those kinds of religious ideas require an obedience to a set of external rules that are applied on top of our lives in the hopes that doing those things will somehow change our status with God, and it is crushing to live that way. There's never enough doing if that's what you're about. Always doing. But Christianity, and this is the gospel, you see the work is already done. The work's already done that makes you right with God. It's through faith that you Get that, because Christ already did it. In the gospel, God is pleased with you. You know why? Because he's pleased with his son. And his son is the only one that can please him. And your faith in his son, God says, you're now right with me. Boy, that's freeing and that's liberating. That's the gospel. And that is good news. Makes us right again. Gives us a relationship with God the Father after we have been disobedient and after we have been rebellious and after we deserve nothing but death in eternity and our faith then makes us right and all that is wiped out because of Jesus. Absolutely liberating stuff. And if your heart didn't just skip a beat right there as you responded to the gospel, then you need to think seriously about the gospel you thought you believed because that makes my heart skip a couple beats. We do what we do not because we have to as Christians. We do what we do because that's simply who we are. Everybody get the message. Peter is saying, just be you in all circumstances of life. In the gospel, we are set free. In Christ, we are set free. We are set free from the past, past sins, past guilt, past shame, past failures, past perspectives, past circumstances, past constraints. All gone. 
no longer slaves to our nature, no longer slaves to the controlling influences of our personalities. And we need to hear that. You need to hear, and I need to hear, that our personalities don't control us anymore in the gospel because of Christ. No longer does our nature and our personality get to dictate to us how we respond in situations in life. I am free. Man, I want to sing a song right now. I am free. I am free because Christ has set me free. And that is good news. The problem is, it's easy for us to fall back on our old personalities. It's easy for us to say things like this. Why'd you do that? Why are you like that? Well, that's just who I am. You ever said that? That's just who I am. That's just the way I was made. That's just the way God made me. Now, you might as well have just come out and said this. Y'all just deal with it, because that's who I am. Now, that's not living a different life because your life has been changed. That's referring back to the old life and saying, it's too hard for me to change, and so y'all just deal with it. It's who I am. And if we say that, then we need to listen carefully because the Holy Spirit's going to come, the gospel's going to come, whisper so gently in our ears, hogwash. Or as they used to say in North Carolina, hogwash. Where did the R come from in that? I don't know. Hogwash. Holy Spirit's going to say, stop believing that. Because of the gospel, a gospel that is so great and so powerful, we are set free to live a life that pleases God in Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. We are liberated for righteousness to serve God and to follow Christ. Start thinking different. So the gospel produces a new way to think. The gospel produces a new way to live. Holy living. Let's review verses 15 and 16 here. But like the Holy One who called you... Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That verse comes out of, he's quoting Leviticus, by the way. When we read that verse, it takes our minds back to the images and the pictures of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Back to the book of Leviticus. Back to the Old Testament where God called himself and revealed himself to be holy. And he called his people Israel to be like him. And we read these words, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We think about Moses on Mount Sinai, don't we? Our Sunday school lessons now come back to us. Remember that through Moses, God had told Pharaoh of Egypt to let his people go. He called Israel his firstborn son, indicating that God was the father of Israel who chose them from all the nations to come and worship him. And God brings them to Mount Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments to confirm Confirmed the covenant with them that he had promised so long ago in the days of Abraham. And there at Mount Sinai, he calls them a holy nation. And the word holy uh, means to, to do everything perfectly to a perfect set of standards. And there's only one person who's ever done that. It's Jesus. God's the only being that's holy. We'll talk a lot more about what it means to be holy next week. But just to put it in perspective... Uh, you know, we say we want to go to the holy land or go to the holy places or what. If God's not there, it's not holy. I just blew everybody's bubble. Holy land's not holy. What do you mean by that? Understand that wherever God is, that's where holiness is. If God is not there, it is not holy. He is the only one that contains holiness, that has holiness, the only one. Holiness means to be sanctified, means to be set apart. And the people of God at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament are called to be distinctive, called to be set apart from all the other nations. They are to live under God's reign. He is to be their king, and they are to show his glory to the world. Kind of sounds like what he calls Christians to do today, isn't it? God's going to sanctify his people in the Old Testament and there will be one place in the temple where his goodness and his glory can be seen on earth and God's people then are saved from slavery in Egypt for missional obedience to the world. To be a light in a dark world is the reason why he saved them. 
And here's the really cool thing. The covenant that God makes with his people is confirmed by the sprinkling of blood. Go back to Exodus chapter 24. Moses sprinkles blood on the people as he confirms the covenant of God. Look at verse, look at first Peter. Go back up to uh, chapter 1, verse 2. He's talking about them being scattered as aliens according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be, obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Boy, he's, he's, he's giving that whole picture again, Peter is, to the people of God living in Turkey and by application by us, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. All the same elements are present here. We are chosen out of this world by the Father. We are sanctified and set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit. We are called to be missionally obedient by the sprinkling of Christ's blood. Peter, again, he's quoting from Leviticus. You shall be holy because I am holy. You know, um, so many times we start off reading our Bibles for the year. And we're going to start in Genesis, right? It's a good place to start. Genesis is, is good. It's got a lot of stories and that's the Sunday school stories are in there and we just we're man we're enjoying Genesis and then Exodus and we've got the Ten Commandments and the Ten Plagues and there's just all this crazy stuff going on. We're like really just digging it. And then we get to Leviticus and what happens? Er! Yeah, strange book, isn't it? Hard to grasp what they're talking about. It's a scary book sometimes. Contains lots of rules and regulations and kind of frightens us a little bit. We don't understand it. We don't have a context for it. It's a difficult book to read and grasp for sure. It's an awesome book, by the way, once you do read it and grasp it. But fundamentally, Leviticus, the, 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 the scripture that Peter is quoting here, is about God creating a new society in the world. He's teaching them in Leviticus how to be fundamentally different culminating with this statement, you shall be holy for I am holy. He wants them to be distinctive in every way, God is telling the the people in the Old Testament. He wants his nation to display the holiness of God in such a way that it attracts the nations to find blessing in God and the promised blessings of Abraham. Here's the thing, a little bit about the book of Leviticus. The reason why I'm saying this is because the whole premise of be holy as I am holy is that they are set apart to be distinctive in the land where they're at. He gives them distinctives in the book of Leviticus about how to worship. Where to worship. The sacrifices to give in worship. In the book of Leviticus, they are given distinctives for even the kind of material that they use to sew their clothes together. Right? Don't let these two kinds of threads come together. That's not good. Be distinctive. He gives them distinctions about what kind of food they can eat, right? So you, um, any catfish lovers in here? You know, back in Texas, there's a lot of good catfish back there. Yeah, you wouldn't be eating catfish in Israel. That's a bottom-feeding fish. Uh-uh. No shellfish. None of those bottom feeders. That's not good on the diet. Good food. Clean food. Unclean food, right? Distinctives. Distinctives about... Uh, you know, is that one, that, that crazy one, that says, don't boil a young kid in its mother's milk. You ever read that? Like, what in the world is that about? Because that's what the other countries did. That's what the pagans did. So God is telling them in Leviticus, don't be like the rest of the world. I have called you. I have chosen you. I have set you apart to live a distinctive way that reflects my glory to the world. And Peter says, you know what? That is now you chosen people of God, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is now calling you to live a life that is distinctive the same way. You know, I mean, the people of God, they, they had this great opportunity to live a different way. Take every seventh day off. Now, we look at that as, yeah, we'll, we'll take the sixth and seventh days off. But in the Old Testament world, you worked seven days or you went hungry. You worked seven days or you might die and starve and die. And yet here, every seventh day, the people of God are taking the day off. What, what are the pagans thinking? How do you do that? Then every seventh year, they take the whole, they don't work the land for a whole year. How do you live without working the land for a whole year? Because God supports them for an entire year. 
Now, those are the promises and the distinctives that God gave Israel in the Old Testament that Peter's kind of pulling into the future here. He's pulling into this this context and saying, look, if God promised that then, what is he promising now with this great salvation that we have? Set apart. Here's what Peter is telling his readers. Our holiness, our godliness knows no boundaries. Defines our friendships, marriages, work. Leisure, finances, politics, just like in the Old Testament, the distinctives covered every area of life, so our being set apart covers every area of life. Be distinctive, because I am distinctive. Godliness is a way of life. It's also a conscious decision, by the way. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, so we've prepared our minds for action, we're thinking different. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, now that you know better, do better. Don't be conformed. Prepare your minds. When temptation comes, think different. Act different. Don't take your eyes off Christ. Future focused. Now, you just spent a whole chapter talking about that. Because if we take our eyes off of Christ in the present, if we do that, what's going to happen is that we will elevate ourselves to be our own gods. That's what happens. If we take off our, our eyes off of Christ in the future, we're just overwhelmed by what's happening in this world. So you can never take your eyes off of Christ in the present or in the future. Set your minds on Christ being revealed in glory. And finally, number three... The gospel results in new thinking and new uh, being, new doing, and finally in a new family. Look at this, a new family, verse 14. As obedient children. Then verse 17. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. You know, in the, in the 50s, the 1950s, um, Change was coming. I think people saw it. And they created this term called the nuclear family. And no, it's not a family that endured an atomic bomb and like grew six legs or anything. That's not what they're talking about. The nuclear family was a term that was developed to be about a, a husband and a wife and kids. And that was the nuclear family. That was the building block of society. Now, we've kind of lost a lot of that, haven't we? So godliness right here, as we're being told, obedient children who call Father, our Heavenly Father as Father, that we are now coming to a new family. And that godliness is a family thing. The Heavenly Father and His children, and in some cases, Jesus is called our older brother. Godliness is a family trait. Um, y'all watch Duck Dynasty, the Robertsons down in Louisiana? Come on, who watches Duck Dynasty? Be brave. Really, that's all? You're all, you're lying. Repent. (laughs) Duck Dynasty is all about a family and how they live and their values and how they do things in life. And and they're Bible-believing, born-again Christians, so they're very distinctive of how they live. But you can tell that they're a family unit that loves Jesus. It's a great picture. As obedient children, if you call Father, your Heavenly Father as Father, then you're going to look like the family that you're born into. We're set apart by God. We're set apart for God. We are not like the world. Remember, he's already called us aliens and strangers. Set apart in community. We're called to show the world who our Father is. Be who you are. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week, this idea of family and, and how you live that, that out. But the gospel results in a new family. You call God your father now, who loves you. He's a different kind of father, who is always there to support you, always there to protect you, always there to love you, never leaves you, never forsakes you. And not many of us can say we've ever had a father like that here on this earth. We're in a new family with new brothers and sisters, and we have a different attitude towards each other, more Next week on that. And finally this. The gospel produces a new motivation. Read again verse 17 with me. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear 
during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, remember, is sprinkled with it. For he, that's Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Wow. We're going to stop there for today. Wow. The gospel produces a new motivation. Remember he said, conduct your time here in fear. Now, he's not wanting you to run around being afraid of God. That's not the context here. He's giving you a series of comparisons. Did you see them? Your futile way of life, your perishable way of life versus the eternal way of life, the imperishable way of life. Did you see the comparison there? Fear means understanding the difference between the two and saying, oh, how great a life I have now. What a great savior I have now. Saved by not gold and silver. The most uh, precious things on this earth are gold and silver. And he says, no, the most precious thing on this earth is the blood of Christ that you were sprinkled with. What is Peter trying to tell them? And by extension and application, what is he trying to tell us? He's telling us be motivated to a new life of holiness and a new life of godliness. We are supposed to be so overwhelmed by this incredible, awesome goodness of what God did for us in Jesus that we are so excited to live for him, to change our ways through obedience and conscious decision-making, begin to die to ourselves and let the Holy Spirit change us. We need to have a new motivation for that because it's who you are. You combine this, this understanding of a new motivation with the new family, and we have a father who is training up his children. It's the picture. Fathers training up his children to look like their older brother Jesus. And if we don't have the right motivation, let me tell you this, God will give you the right motivation. And this is a hard word for a lot of us today especially in our culture, and especially the age group that I'm addressing, most of you being younger, youngish. Here's the thing. Here's the, here's the thought. It's kind of hard. So, so grasp this if you can. The key issue in our life is not our happiness. Oh, he didn't just say that, did he? The key issue in our life is not happiness. The key issue in our life is godliness. The key issue in our life is holiness. Don't be happy as I am happy. He does not say that. In fact, you can look for happy a long time in Scripture and not find it. You can see joy. You can see fulfillment. You can see purpose. You can see the light. But you can't see happy. And our happiness is not what God is concerned about. That may come as a harsh word for some of you today. Cultural, that's a harsh word. Sometimes we forget how much the culture has impacted how we think as Christians today. Christ didn't die to make us happy. I hope you know that. Christ did not die to prevent our suffering in this life. Suffering's going to happen. It's how we live through it that makes us different. God's purpose for us is not that we get everything we want. Not that life is a bowl of cherries and we breeze through life with some minimal amount of pain because now we're Christians. Do not think that, brothers and sisters. That is not what God is about in this life. God's preoccupation is our godliness, not our happiness. What God wants in our response to things in this life is repentance and faith because he does not offer ease and enjoyment. I need to say that again. I can see the looks on some of your faces. I need to say that again. What God wants in our response in this life is repentance and faith because he does not offer ease and enjoyment. Repent and believe 
That's what the gospel tells us to do when we run up against things that don't match up with God's plan. The gospel is all about repenting and believing, not ease and enjoyment. And then there's this. I just want to point this out. God, our loving, merciful, heavenly Father, will go to whatever lengths he has to and make us godly. To make us holy. To make us like Christ. Whatever he has to do. He'll be however ruthless he has to be. However brutal he has to be. To make us changed into the image of his son. And that is not what we want to hear. But in a world where suffering comes first and then glory comes later, we need to hear it. We need to reorient our minds to what the gospel says our life is supposed to look like and be confident and content in it. God will cut down every tree and every idol in your life. Do you believe that this morning? I'm telling you, he will. (laughs) He's doing it to me. He'll cut down every tree and every idol in your life. He'll break down every stronghold that you have of self. You know, think about when Israel, uh, again, the, the reference of Israel going into the promised land, and God told them to wipe out all the pagan nations, and where were they always worshiping? In the high places. Underneath the trees, God's going to cut them all down. And why does God do this? That's the question is, and why does God do that? Because he wants us to, in him alone, find refuge. He knows that it's only in him that we trust that we will truly find contentment and rest and fulfillment and refuge from the things of this world. With him alone will our lives be something that will glorify him. And in him alone will we find the strength to persevere. That's the way it was with Jesus. That's the way it is with us. You want to know how God treats us? Just look to Jesus. Except that he doesn't put us on the cross. He put Jesus there. It's good news. Verses 20 and 21. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times, talking about Jesus, for the sake of you. God did that for you. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Godliness is already secured for us. God's already done it. He did it in Jesus. You know, Romans 8.28, I'm just going to read that because it's just a, a summary of what he's talking about here. And Paul has this great summary in Romans 8. Let me read that to you. We know that God works, causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He's going to make you into the image of his son, and he'll do whatever he has to to make that happen. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Your salvation and your image-making into Christ is so secure. It's so safe. God's going to do it. And all we've got to do is just live who we are and glorify God in it. So just in closing, let's close today. That's enough for one day, don't you think? (laughs) You know, we cannot expect to be like the world. I hope you're not trying to be like the world. You cannot try and keep up the world with how we do church or how we do anything. You can't be like the world. The more we start to look like the world, the less we have to offer the world. God says the world needs to see people living out their lives as obedient children, on mission and in holiness. God says that's what the world needs to see, people of God, that's what he's called us to. 
Now, next week, we're going to really take a hard look at the practical side of this holiness and how we're to live it out. There's a four-letter word that comes to mind. It's called love. We're going to unpack that next week. So at the heart of what Peter is telling his readers here is not a new way of doing the old practices of Judaism. He's bringing their old understandings of the Old Testament, bringing them into the new light of the gospel. And he's telling them to live out their lives in in this word-centered, Christ-centered gospel communities. That's what he's telling them. That's how we're supposed to live, in a gospel community. We'll talk more about what that means in the coming weeks. Peter is not wanting Christians to define their identity simply as being different from the culture. He wants them to see their new identity and see themselves in terms of it. He says, don't be like your neighbors, just be you. Do you know who you are this morning? Do you know what God has called you to be? If you do, then, in the words of Peter, just be you. Be free as you're doing it. Let's pray together. Father, what a, what a great and convicting word this is. And Father, we need to see this because our country is desperately falling. And we need to be the light that shines as people fall. We need to be the, the hand that reaches out as they're falling that they can grab that we can be that light on the hill. We can, we can be that salt that they can taste in their life. Father, help us to be authentic Christians, ones that know who we are, know what suffering is about, know that glory comes later, knowing that we need to live in community in such a way that the world will see us as we suffer, as we live our lives every day. Even in the good things, that they will see us giving praise and glory to you, and they'll say, how do they do that? Father, I'm just I'm struck by the picture of the Old Testament in Leviticus, how you, you made their entire lives, the clothes they wore, the food they eat, the way they worshipped, everything was distinctively set apart for you so the rest of the world would see it and glorify you. Oh, Father, help us to grasp that today, that that is what you called us to be as well. Obedient children who, who know our salvation is great, who think differently, act differently, and show the world a glorious Savior. His name is Jesus. Oh, how we love Jesus. Thank you for him. We pray in his name. Amen.